Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club of California, where you are in the know. Uh, my name is Carolyn Wang Kong. I am the Chief Program Director at Blue Shield of California Foundation, and we are so excited to support tonight's program. We're excited to support the, t- the program because the topic is actually directly connected to our mission and our vision, which is about making California the healthiest state and also ending domestic violence. The program is entitled Domestic Violence, a Cross-Sectional Approach to Affecting Change. So in California, the impact of domestic violence, both in our state and across the nation, runs quite deep. Uh, A 2017 survey that the foundation commissioned in our state revealed that 58% of Californians have actually been touched by domestic violence, either as an abuser a victim, or through close friends or family members. That means that basically more than half of our state has actually been affected by domestic violence. That translates to more than 20 million people, and to us it's 20 million people too many. Despite the steadfast efforts of the domestic violence field and also courageous advocates, policymakers, survivors, families, and communities still find themselves asking, why is domestic violence still so prevalent, and what can be done to prevent it? The word prevent comes from two Latin words, pray and veneer, which means to come before. So what needs to actually come before an incidence of domestic violence to stop it before it even begins? What actually precedes violence? And when and where might we we be actually able to anticipate when it's going to happen so that we can act earlier? These are just some of the tough questions that our panelists and moderator will be guiding us through this evening during tonight's discussion. Tonight, we're also going to be talking about domestic violence as it relates to disparities, because the rates of domestic violence actually vary by age, by sex, by socioeconomic status, by race, and a whole host of other factors. So what that tells us when we know that there are inequities in these rates is that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to domestic violence prevention. However, we believe that understanding what actually influences and perpetuates domestic violence will give us insight on what the root causes are. And if we have some insight into what the root causes are, then we have an opportunity to actually disrupt violence. Tonight, we're also going to be talking about the intersection of domestic violence and gun violence. There's an inextricable connection there, unfortunately. Um, The research shows us that abusers with firearms are five times more likely to kill their victims in situations of domestic violence. Five times. If access to guns makes domestic violence that much more lethal then absolutely more needs to be done to remove them from the hands of those who aim to do deadly harm. We also know that domestic violence is cyclical. It occurs across multiple generations. The foundation did some recent work uh, called the Life Course Analysis, which really makes it clear that children who experience or are exposed to violence in the home are more likely to grow up to be abusers themselves, or to be victims in adulthood. The research also tells us that those children are much much more likely to suffer significant consequences to their health and development as a result of that childhood experience and exposure. So this research actually sheds new light on what the risk factors are across generations. And it tells us a couple of things. It tells us that prevention actually needs to include consideration of children and whole families. It also tells us that interventions can't be point in time. They actually need to occur at multiple points across an individual's lifespan. So this is where prevenir, prevent, enters back in. What comes before domestic violence actually becomes an entrenched behavior across generations. What needs to happen? 
If we want to end violence and its far-reaching repercussions, then we have to start to get at the root causes. So our vision for ending domestic violence in California is very much focused on the needs of survivors, and in particular, survivors who are marginalized, with a focus on strategies that support healing, prevention, and empowerment. And we know that that actually means that we have to support innovative solutions like restorative justice, which you will hear about this evening. Restorative justice offers survivors not only an alternative way out, but also a way forward. But despite knowing a lot about domestic violence, we have a whole cadre of knowledge and practice, we must continue to ask ourselves, what are the policies and community-based approaches that actually lead to prevention? Prevention of harm against women, families, and society at large, and ensuring a better future for all of us. So, to help us answer these questions are tonight's distinguished panelists and moderator, who I will go ahead and introduce. Katie Albright is the CEO at Safe and Sound, which is an organization that's dedicated to raising awareness about the red flags of abuse, challenging existing laws, and also really ensuring that the voices of survivors are heard. Katie's been at Safe and Sound for 12 years, and she's drawn some really important connections in her work between domestic violence and the compounding pressures of things like economic instability, education, insufficient education, and child abuse. Her prior experience includes being the San Francisco Deputy City Attorney, where she represented public schools, the San Francisco Education Fund Policy Director, where she led a campaign to improve teacher quality and student retention, and Preschool California co-director of policy and outreach, where she campaigned statewide for universal preschool. Delia Gennario is a nationally recognized expert in criminal justice reform and approaches. Delia is the Survivor Restoration Program Director for the San Francisco Sheriff's Department and is a key leader in the award-winning project Resolve to Stop the Violence Project. Delia has also been instrumental in bringing restorative justice into law enforcement, which has helped to shift the focus to offender accountability, survivor restoration, and community involvement to reduce recidivism, responsibly return ex-offenders to their communities, and prevent future violence and improve public safety. Delia leads a team of survivor staff that works directly with women, children, and men who've been harmed and silenced by violence. And as a survivor of violence herself, she really does understand the importance of providing critical services and supports to all that are affected by violence. Julia Weber is a gun violence restraining order implementation fellow at the Giffords Law Center, which is the nation's leading policy organization that's really dedicated to researching, writing, enacting, and defending proven laws and programs. They work to save lives from gun violence by shifting culture, changing policies, and challenging injustice. Julie has been an expert on domestic violence policy. She spent her whole career working to develop and implement promising practices to, to prevent and respond to violence. Prior to joining the Giffords Law Center, Julia worked for over 17 years, I think it's closer to 18, um, with the Judicial Council of California's Center for Families, Children, and the Courts, where she served as co-counsel to Family and Juvenile Law Advisory Committee and also supervised the Access to Justice Unit. And finally, our moderator today is Emma Mayerson. Emma is the founding executive director for the Alliance for Girls, the nation's largest Association, membership association of girls serving organizations. She spent her career in organizing and social welfare. Prior to the Alliance for Girls, she was a community organizer for the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights and also worked for the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco and the Women's Foundation of California. For her tireless work, Emma has won several awards, including the Oasis for Girls Spark Award for Visionary Leadership and the National Council on Jewish Women's Outstanding Advocate for Social Change Award, among others. She's also been featured on ABC7, KCBS, and NPR's All Things Considered. That's quite a list. So please join me in welcoming these impressive speakers as I turn the program over to Emma. Thank you. 
Great. Well, I am so excited to host this panel and to be on this panel with you. Something I have been looking forward to is each of you really holds, as Carolyn so well spoke, a, a different aspect of what domestic violence looks like, feels like, and what are the contributors to domestic violence. Um, so I'd love to just start with telling us a little bit about your work. What is it that you do and how does gun violence, how does child abuse, how do we see what happens after an incident of domestic violence and restorative justice, how does that intersect with this issue of domestic violence and why is it an important component for us to think about? Okay, well, thank you. you. Uh, sure, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here and uh, especially do- during Domestic Violence Awareness Month and to have the platform and opportunity to speak to these issues. So in my work with the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence, I'm particularly focused on, as, as was already described, looking at the connection between firearms violence prevention and intervention and domestic violence. So uh, in California, for example, We have some really um, progressive and thoughtful policies in place at the state level uh, to address firearms violence and domestic violence, um, both in the civil and in the criminal context. And I think we'll talk more about this, but domestic violence, of course, in the court system shows up in both of those uh, settings. And we have some very uh, strong prohibitions, and yet we haven't been as effective at implementing those prohibitions. And so part of my work is looking at what are those obstacles to overcoming the, um, the, the uh, challenges to implementation? What do we need to do to do a better job making sure we separate people who may be dangerous if they have access to firearms um, in terms of their intimate partners and their family members and the community at large? So we know that not only do we need to be concerned about family members and firearms, but also the public generally. Mm. Um, the majority of mass shootings uh, where four or more people have been killed, uh, the perpetrator has also killed an intimate partner. Mm. Um, so this is something that affects all of us in a variety of ways. And uh, so that's what I do there. And I also work on uh, teaching at Golden Gate University School of Law and Domestic Violence um, and hopefully uh, helping more attorneys become familiar with how prevalent domestic violence is and what our courts can do in terms of doing a better job more effectively to address the issue for families and in the criminal context. So, mm. Thank you. Great. Delia. Hi, everybody. I'm Delia. And um, I've been with the Sheriff's Department for about 24 years now, um, working um, with victims of violent crimes and also offenders of violent crimes. So, um, again, it's, you know, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I just feel, um, because today has been a really interesting day for a lot of us in the domestic violence community. Um, Actually, it's been a heartbreaking day um, around restorative justice and domestic violence. Um, 18 years ago, um, in the year 2000, uh, my client and several people that are in here's client was killed. Um, and it really made a, um, a real shift in, like I, I, I myself almost left my career because um, it was five years into um, my career in the sheriff's department. And um, this particular person fled and went to Mexico and um, was caught about six years later and brought back to San Francisco for trial. Um, I won't go into all the details, but um, what's really up for me today is that um, uh, several of my colleagues that are here went to his parole hearing, and he's going to be paroled Mm. after only doing nine years. So um, it's when we talk, and I... um, when, what I bring to the work around restorative justice is the understanding that I equally work in both worlds of um, supporting victims of domestic violence and other crimes, along with working with violent offenders in programs. And um, my mentor and colleague, Sunny Schwartz, is here, who developed a lot of the programs in the San Francisco Sheriff's Department. So it's a challenge um, a lot in the community around domestic violence and restorative justice because in believing that um, restorative justice means that there shouldn't be any jail time or prison time, right? The key piece is asking what the survivor wants because me as a survivor who may have experienced A, B, or C may be very different than what you would want, right? And some of the things may be the same, 
but ultimately it's what I want and what I need because my needs of what happened to me are very different from someone else. That's what drew me to um, restorative justice um, and also understanding as a survivor myself is that the people who have harmed me and the people who have harmed our clients in the community also have trauma and also have been harmed and needs support and services. So we can build, you know, a thousand more DV shelters, but if we also don't address the people who are doing violence and offer them programs and opportunities to change, the cycle can just, you know, continue. And I've seen in the, in the you know, when we talk about the cycle of violence, um, I have seen, you know, in the jail system, you know, a, a great-grandfather, grandfather, grandson, you know, in the system all at the same time. So really giving people the opportunity to change. So I also want to say, and I do this in different arenas, sometimes it comes up, sometimes it doesn't, it's very up for me today, um, that what brings me to this work and passion is um, that my father and my older sister killed my mom on my seventh birthday. So I come to this work with a lot of passion and um, understanding of the importance of accountability, healing, forgiveness on my own terms and on each survivor's own terms. Um, And so the challenge with restorative justice is making sure that folks understand that it may be for some folks and it may not be for everybody and it's not for us to put it on anyone. And it doesn't mean that, again, prison or jail time isn't what's needed because I work in a program where men are accountable every day for the violence that they do that's not going to help their case, that they may never contact a victim, but they're still accountable and making changes um, on their behavior. And the last thing I want to say, and I always say this, regardless of how much I truly believe in our programs in the jails, particularly our Resolve to Stop the Violence program and our Batterers Treatment program, which is Man Alive, that I will still say that no program works. Um, I will never guarantee that a program works. And the reason I say that is because if I say to survivors that just because you're, um, you know, the person who harmed you, your batterer, or is in our program and our program works, it's a false sense of safety. Our job, and I... I definitely, you know, talk to other people about it when they make these false guarantees, um, which is one of the challenges that we're having today um, with the recommendation of this person getting out, um, guaranteeing that he's going to be, you know, an asset to the community. But you cannot say that. Um, So ultimately, we can provide tools and information for folks to change their behavior, which we do, but it's ultimately their choice whether to use that information. That, we can guarantee we have good information and good programs, but we can't guarantee that they're going to work because it's up to that individual. And that's some of the challenges with restorative justice and other programs, um, to making sure um, that there isn't a false guarantee of safety because somebody's in a program. Thank you. Thank you so much. I feel deeply honored to be on this stage with you. And, um, and really privileged to be part of an effort of Blue Shield and the Commonwealth Club to bring more awareness around domestic violence, particularly in October at the end of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, I'm an attorney by trade, and I came to this work, and my first client was a 26-year-old grandmother. You can sort of do the math on that. Um, My second client was a 15-year-old girl who had... Uh, gotten raped by her mother's boyfriend. And she was seeking, I was working in Washington, D.C., she was seeking what was called a judicial bypass, um, which is permission from the court, asking the court if she could get an abortion. And what came very clear to me with those two cases was that the court system and the laws that I had learned so much about and deeply valued and we're hearing about it today and we will in our panel today um, can solve some problems but can't solve a lot of problems. And really what we need to do holistically is think about community approaches. 
And so I set my path on um, that journey and the intersection of, of those two cases with domestic violence is quite profound. My, the, the client that was a 26-year-old grandmother um, was living in a domestic violence situation, and she was doing the best she could to take care of her kids. And the mother of the boyfriend who raped the little girl, the 15-year-old, desperately, desperately pleaded with her daughter not to tell anyone because she didn't have a place to live. And even though that home was one of violence, she needed that home to be her sanctuary. And so I think that these cases for me, and we see it uh, every day in the work that we do, are really endemic of what are the complexities of family violence. I am lucky enough to work at Safe and Sound, and several colleagues are here with me. We were formerly the San Francisco Child Abuse Prevention Center. We've been working in our community for more than uh, 45 years. And what we do is provide a vision to the community that we can end child abuse. Um, We're saying that we can end child abuse in two generations. Um, And we do so by providing direct services to families who are coming to us voluntarily because they want help in their families. We provide education in the community, and we partner deeply with others who um, we together can really think about how to end child abuse. Mm. We're very lucky to be partnering with Bev Upton and others from the Domestic Violence Consortium and others in our community. Uh, Sunny Schwartz is a huge hero of mine, and I think others, <laughs> um, around how we can, as a continuum, um, prevent, we learned that word at the beginning, prevent child abuse, um, because it is the root cause of so many other types of family violence, domestic violence, elder abuse. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation that we're having here um, about how do we think about not just ending and remediating domestic violence once it's, once it's happened, but how do we get to the root cause of actually preventing it from happening in the first place mm. and deeply doing that with upstream work and working with families when their children are quite young so we can prevent it from ever happening in the first place. Mm. Thank you, Katie. And as I'm hearing these incredible stories, I'm wanting to recognize how personal um, this work is, talking about domestic violence, talking about our personal stories and recognizing uh, that many of you in the audience are possibly survivors of domestic violence, um, have witnessed domestic (laughs) violence. As Carolyn said, 58% of Californians have been touched by domestic violence, which means every other one of you potentially has been touched by this issue. So just wanting to recognize as we tell our stories and we go into stories of domestic violence um, to hold space for the audience here today to recognize that this is a very hard issue, both personally and systemically, um, and to, to welcome your input if you need to step out if something's feeling triggering to also really create space for that in this room today. Um, I loved the personal stories you both shared. And I know, Julia, uh, I would love to hear a personal story from you too around how you got into this work. You've had such a career in domestic violence. Um, It's led you to the Gifford Center and gun violence, but really has spanned beyond that. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into this work as well. Sure, thank you. So um, it's interesting, Katie, uh, your story about judicial bypass. I uh, had the privilege of going to an all-girls school in Phoenix uh, for high school where I grew up, and uh, it was really there that I became aware of how prevalent violence was. And uh, it was also a place where there was a a relatively high rate of pregnancy in um, the city. And um, I accompanied at 16. I did the research when a friend got pregnant and was choosing abortion and needed to go through a judicial bypass procedure. And so I did the research And I think it was at that moment that I thought, maybe I'll go to law school one day. Um, And we went to court and um, were able to to go through that process. And I think it's important to make that kind of connection in terms Mm -hmm. of recognizing the various experiences that girls and women have in terms of needing to access the courts. Um, And, you know, it was a school where too many girls and young women Uh, ended up talking about experiences of violence in their home, Um, what we now refer to as date rape. We didn't have quite the same understanding, I think, that we do now. 
Um, but it was, you know, becoming aware as a girl and a young woman about the experiences of my uh, friends and associates. Uh, and then as I increasingly went on and became interested in, I was a women's studies major, um, just the subordination uh, and abuse that women experience. Um, eventually, I, I decided to focus on that. I, I did um, a combined degree in law and social work. And before I did that, I, I was an activist working on a number of different issues. Um, I had worked at the now Legal Defense and Education Fund in college. So I used to say I was going to law school so I would know what to do when I got arrested at a protest. Uh, but as soon as you go to law school, the last thing you want to do is get arrested because now you have quite a bit writing on um, staying uh, uh, within the rules. So um, anyway, so I did a combined degree in law and social work because I was interested in community organizing and advocacy uh, because I just had so many examples of uh, situations where I felt that women were really denied protection and safety, and that it was just sort of a term and condition of being female mm -hmm. um, in our country at this time, in, in most places in the world, I would say, but, uh, you know, and not being willing to um, allow that to happen anymore. So mm -hmm. the stories are, are endless. I would also say that a more recent story that reminds me of how important this work is, is uh, I, I do some contract work with uh, Mendocino Superior Court um, mediating child custody and domestic violence cases in the civil mm -hmm. context. And there was a young man, a dad, 18, uh, grew up in the foster care system, uh, was now a new, a new parent with um, a young woman, also 18, who was living with her parents. Um, each of them had a history of violence. And I kept thinking, how are we going to figure this out? Here's this little baby coming in to this world where we really want to avoid another generation of violence. And um, how are we going to work this out? And he, on his own, said to me, you have so much power. You and all the people in this court, I can't get a job. Um, and he didn't say it in any kind of confrontational way, but just acknowledging his own marginalization mm. um, and experience of not really knowing what he can do or having access to the resources. And it was a good reminder that those of us who are in a position to do something, I believe should do something and um, whatever we can. And so I've continued to pursue that as various issues have come up. Um, I've taught on uh, race, gender, and violence against women. Um, and, and I happen to be uh, designing that course in 19, uh, 1995 and 96 as the O.J. Simpson case was developing, uh, you know, of course, on the heels of the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas uh, situation. So, and one of the things I was just uh, commenting earlier about is that um, I have a friend who said to me, if you're in your 50s and you don't have a mentor in their 20s or 30s, you're missing out. And uh, I just love that. And one of the reasons I was so happy to join Giffords Law Center uh, was I could continue as a consultant and a speaker and teacher and so forth, but to be working with people coming out of law school who are in their 20s. And we have these wonderful conversations about what are the social movements and issues that got you interested in social justice work and in advocacy. And they're very different stories. Um, just the examples I gave you that inspired me, they have their own experiences of Ferguson um, and, and other concerns. And so I just think it's so important to remember whatever's going on, there's a moment where we should and can um, do whatever it is that needs to be done. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Yeah, I love I love your story about uh, have a mentor in their 20s and 30s. I'll say, um, as the executive director of Alliance for Girls, I'd push even younger. <laughs> I certainly have mentors in their teens who teach me an incredible amount about what's going on. Um, I think something so powerful about this panel is all of you have been in this work for a long time. 
um, and rest on the shoulders of giants even before you. Uh, and I'd love to hear what you have seen in terms of the evolution of how domestic violence is understood by our communities, in our society, even in our homes, right? How children and their parents are understanding domestic violence differently over time. The Violence Against Women Act mm. was passed not so long ago. Um, and in many ways, we've made tremendous strides. But I'd love to hear from each of you what you've seen uh, in terms of that change. Well, I can start because, um, you know, someone, so I was very naive when I first came into the field um, because I really understood through my mentor, Sunny, the importance of restorative justice and providing services for offenders and survivors and having the community involved. And as, as a survivor myself, understanding um, well, we, the core curriculum of Man Alive, which we challenge what we call the male role belief system um, as a social issue, um, and the difference between, I mean, the, the constant fight of inferior and superior and, you know, ultimately to having two superiors, um, where the violence comes from. So that's a whole other panel. But um, for me, what I've seen the most, change, uh, especially working in the sheriff's department, because I also work with incarcerated survivors and human trafficking victims that are incarcerated as a team that works with those um, survivors, is the shift of me really understanding how important the programs are for everybody, right? For the survivors, for the offenders, for the community to get involved, for it all, right? Because, you know, we know um, that a lot of our survivors go back to the relationships. So while we have folks incarcerated, it's our job to give them an opportunity to change. But the community um, that I was involved, the survivor community, and particularly the DV community, wasn't there yet. Because um, again, this is like 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, they didn't want to hear about all these. I was excited because I got it, why we needed all these programs for these violent offenders. When you actually looked at some of the programs, you know, you're like, what? Yoga, meditation, you know, um, you know, violence prevention, education, you know, art classes, that, that all with a purpose. There's, it's, it's a longer story, but why we do certain things. Um, but the survivor community is like, what the heck? Right? Um, and then with the help of Beverly Upton, um, with the Domestic Violence Consortium, and a few others, to start trusting me, um, particularly because I was a liaison in the sheriff's department between you know the, the survivor community with restorative justice and getting people to understand. But at first, you know, I was just like, no, you got to get it, you got to understand. It wasn't the way to do it. Um, so the biggest thing, two things, the, sh- the biggest shifts I've seen um, with the support of our amazing community is understanding that um, violent offenders. And people who are incarcerated need those programs because they're coming, you know, the, the false is that you do something bad, you get locked up, you don't have to worry about them. No. Bottom line is they're coming back out. Mm-hmm. They're coming back to our families, our communities, dating our daughters. Um, and so we have that, you know, window of opportunity to plant a seed, hopefully, that they'll change their behavior because they are getting out. And even more so now, as today just happened. Um, they're, they're coming back out. So that's one thing. And the, I, the DV community understands that now. And then the other shift is the, the trauma and the substance abuse issues around, um, domestic violence survivors, because back in the day, you know, um, when, particularly because I work in the jails too, women who are incarcerated weren't seen as victims, but when you really look at the trauma of them, that, you know, them being raped, incested, molested, put out on the street, um, not only by sometimes their own family members, but by their, you know, their husbands, pimps, ex-boyfriends, whatever. Um, and then doing, you know, a lot of the women that are incarcerated are in prison or jail behind men's violence or getting them to do, particularly our young girls who, um, you know, the older men will, you know, prey on the younger girls who are also trauma to, you know, and then they do less time. So the understanding I've seen in the DV community and in general, more understanding empathy of, of the women that are incarcerated mm-hmm. and the services. Um, mm-hmm. It's still a struggle. There's, you know, it's always, you know, um, a, a larger struggle for women in this 
field, I mean, um, that have been incarcerated for crimes. And, um, and I just need to say that it is a proven fact that women that are arrested for crimes do more time than men. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, um, there's a whole other discussion that we could have around women who have um, killed their batterers in self-defense that get 20, 30, 40, 50 years um, in comparison to, you know, the, the offender that killed my client, you know, 18 years ago, um, literally stabbed her in front of her children um, and got barely nine years. So big difference. So, you know, and in some areas, the awareness is up. In other areas, because of current administrations, violence against women and hate crimes have risen, and I see it. Mm. So, so some areas have been gotten better, and others, sometimes I feel like we're taking steps backwards. Yeah, and yeah, that's and just keeping it real. I yeah. appreciate, Delia, your willingness to talk about the complexity yeah. of this issue, that there's no mm-hmm. easy solutions it's here. Not. Yeah. Um, Katie, I have a question for you mm-hmm. that's a combo of my question and this person's question, um, which is especially when we're looking at children. I think something that's so um, promising there is with the right interventions, you can really change the tra- trajectory of someone's life. Um, and I know that Safe and Sound has done incredible work mm-hmm. being able to really do that. Um, and especially in this context of knowing that one in five teenagers witness domestic violence in their home, that 50% of children that witness domestic violence are under the age of six, right? That we know children are experiencing pretty severe trauma. Um, this question is really around specifically adverse childhood experiences, understanding what that looks like, and the, it, the power of interventions in actually being able to change those negative life outcome trajectories that can come from high ACE scores, adverse childhood experience scores, being able to really shift that in your work. How have you been able to do that? What have you seen? Absolutely. Thanks for the question. And one of the things that uh, the statistics that you shared really show is this real deep intersection between Uh, child abuse and domestic violence. And to carry your numbers a little further, uh, of all the cases of domestic violence that they're out there, 40% of those cases involve violence towards a child. And of all the child abuse cases that are reported out there, 50% of those cases involve domestic violence. So there's a deep Venn diagram, that overlapping diagram that's going on. So it is really important to understand what the impact is, both on the developing brain, as well as the impact on the community as a whole. Mm. And so adverse childhood experiences is an area that has been well-researched by Kaiser uh, to really understand what are the experiences that children may have uh, in their early life that may impact their long-term health, mostly physical and mental health trajectory in life. Mm. And, some, and, and domestic violence is one of those adverse childhood experiences, neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse, or others. And there are about six other uh, core adverse childhood experiences, all of which have accumulated effects of, of long-term health, negative health impacts on children. But what we also know, and your question really um, underlies this, is that you can disrupt this cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really compelling about this work and some of the work that we're doing at Safe and Sound around adopting a public health approach to think about how we can understand what are the risk factors around child abuse as well as what are some of the protective factors around child abuse. And, um, and so one of the things in the adverse childhood experiences area that we're quite concerned is, is what, what happens when you know, and many of us have, and 66% of all Californians and Americans have at least uh, three adverse childhood experiences. And so like, what, what do you do with that information? What, uh, so, so protective factors are really where we're focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and protective factors are happening at an individual level, and I'll share about that, as well as at a community-based level. So at an individual level, we're really focused, and this is where interventions uh, run so deep, uh, we're really focused around building resiliency 
resiliency for the parent and caregiver as well as for the child, social-emotional competencies and their growth. We're concerned about families creating connections in the community so that they know who they can reach out to in times of crisis and in times of joy. We also educate parents around how to raise their kids. And finally, we look at concrete supports, which underscore all of the components around violence, whether or not it's child abuse, domestic violence, or elder abuse. One of the things we haven't spoken about um, here is the disproportionate impact that family violence has on communities of color. And, and because of the complexities of structural racism and systems of oppression, it's an area that we have to very deeply focus on because women and men uh, and people of color are being disproportionately uh, victimized because of violence in their home. And what's, what is a potential is to think about how do you build protective factors up within a family so that we can create strong and healthy relationships that start right out of the womb and goes up through adulthood. Um, And we also need to build healthy communities and build protective factors in communities so that we can increase strong economic supports, so that we can provide opportunities for people to take um, leave from their jobs to have families, that we can provide supports around mental health, substance abuse um, supports, so that we really as a community are holistically trying to provide families opportunities where they can get the supports to interrupt and disrupt those cycles of violence so that that we can have safe families and safe communities. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the work that we're doing at Safe and Sound, really focusing on children specifically. Yeah, thank you. And I think the piece you spoke to around the disproportionate impact of family violence and how that's impacting communities of color is really important to dig deeper into. Um, Something that we work on too at Alliance for Girls is each family really operates as its own ecosystem in some ways and has its own norms, its own ways of operating with each other. How does Safe and Sound take that reality but still create a broad enough approach that you can really intervene in these toxic dynamics within families, uh, recognizing how idiosyncratic each family really is. So I would say this is where community comes in. And Safe and Sound is on a journey like many others are. Mm -hmm. But San Francisco is um, within a community that has really invested in family resource centers. Um, so, which are community-based centers where families can come voluntarily and pretty much get whatever they need to take care of their kids and support their families. Eighty-five um, percent of our families are in um, a domestic violence situations. So, again, you can see that intersectionality with child abuse and domestic violence. Um, but we can only serve um, a certain amount of families. Um, And we're only going to be right for a certain amount of families. And so thankfully, there's this wonderful um, partnership with 25 other family resource centers that are in um, communities. And and together, we really serve sort of all of San Francisco's communities. Mm. And it's really taking that um, uh, culturally responsive approach and really understanding that Families, as you say, um, need and want different things, and um, and and we, as a community, thankfully in San Francisco, has have invested in that uh, diversity and inclusive um, system, mm. a system of care, really, mm. to support our families. Mm. Thank you. Um, Can this, I add one? Just oh, one please. Thing, please. Just because when we're talking about the intersection between child please. abuse and domestic violence, also because. I work closely with animal care and control. That animal abuse is also um, a huge factor um, when mm-hmm. there is animal abuse. And a lot of times the animal care and control officers can actually have more access to the house and can kind of see. And um, so we work closely um, with that. And so that's mm-hmm. another area um, of violence. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I'll continue on that a little bit because equally San Francisco has made a deep commitment to family violence. And so it's not just child abuse and domestic violence, but it's elder abuse. And what we are seeing and uh, your earlier question are what are some of the changes that have happened yeah. in the system? And it's our understanding that we're connecting the dots mm-hmm. on these different types of violence, which is so important mm-hmm. of why we need to prevent it 
at the root cause in the first place. Absolutely. Yes. I love the connecting the dots um, piece of this work and certainly uh, Blue Shield sponsoring this panel. It's in the life course framework. If you haven't looked at it yet, really connects the dots of all of these topics. Um, It makes me think, Julia, when you were speaking earlier, uh, the statistic, and I don't remember it exactly because I hadn't heard it before, but the number of people who commit mass shootings Mm -hmm. who also murdered an intimate partner in their lifetime and that intersection, Mm -hmm. um, which I hadn't heard before, but I'd love to hear more about what you see there Mm -hmm. um, and what we can learn in terms of the intersection between gun violence and domestic violence. Sure. So I had noted that um, in 54% of the mass shootings, and mass shootings are generally defined as where four or more people have been shot and killed, uh, it, they have also, the perpetrators also killed an intimate partner as part yeah. of that. And, and many mass shootings, many of which we don't always hear about, are actually um, situations in which someone has taken out their entire family um, or a significant number of people in their family. So um, I, I would say also to go back to your earlier question, just building on what has already been mentioned, certainly um, the way we've thought about domestic violence, the way we think about domestic violence has changed, and much greater recognition, I think, um, making those connections between firearms and domestic violence, certainly, mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the kinds of things that have been mentioned, mm-hmm. the impact on children. We, did, we used to make it much more difficult, and I think we've improved in this area, although we haven't taken care of it entirely, much more difficult for um, women who were claiming domestic violence, uh, they would also have to demonstrate that domestic violence, even if they proved the domestic violence, they'd also have to prove that it was bad for their kids. And so, at least in policy, I think we are doing a better job making a connection and recognizing the detrimental impact on children. Uh, So that's certainly an area of improvement. And then I would say also making the connection between the um, what some activists talk about as the sexual abuse to prison pipeline, where um, disproportionately women of color are criminalized um, despite their disproportionate exposure to violence or criminalized for their violence. And then in the area of firearms, again, I think we're doing a much better job recognizing just the presence of the firearm, make it five times more likely that a victim will be killed as a result. Related to that, that I think is important, is how often a firearm is used to uh, shoot um, or be shot at, to shoot at victims without killing them. So we we sometimes emphasize the 600-plus women that we know of who are killed each year by an intimate partner as a result of a firearm. Um, But there are over a million women in the U.S. right now who have been shot or shot at, who are alive Um, In firearms, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is reporting a significant uptick in the number of calls in which firearms have been used as a threat, um, which also highlights the um, coercive control, psychological abuse, the non-physical aspects of domestic violence. I think still for too many people, when we think about intimate partner violence, there's a this belief that it is physical and that physical violence is the most severe, but we know the threats, the psychological abuse. Um, and again, just you know, having the, the firearm may never be actually used or fired, but putting the kinds of rules into place that intimate partner uh, violence perpetrators put into place, a very simple definition of domestic violence that I use that comes from the work of Barbara Hart is um, the rulemaking aspect of domestic violence that I think we have a much better sense of, I hope, at this time, which is uh, perpetrators tend to make several rules. The first one is I get to make the rules, right? <laughs> so that's the first one. I'm the rulemaker in this situation. Uh, the next one is that I, I demand loyalty and obedience, undivided attention. Um, the next one is you may not leave the relationship. You, you don't get to choose when this relationship ends. And the next one is you don't get to tell anyone about the violence. So when we understand that those are the rules that are in place, I think mm-hmm. we can have a much better sense of how threats and psychological abuse, the presence of firearms, sexual abuse, um, the threat of possibly being a criminalized yourself all come into play in terms of whether or not people are going to be able to reach out for help and have access to the resources they need to make a decision about uh, leaving or uh, how we can intervene to stop the violence. I keep saying, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be in a better place when we stop asking, why doesn't she leave? 
And instead, we should be asking, what can we do to help stop the violence, really? So um, that's, uh, I think, an important part of it. Yes, and thank you for saying that, because when I do trainings around, um, you know, I always ask the audience, um, why do women stay? Um, What's the number one reason? And people, you know, the trainings will, you know, raise their hand and give me a hundred different reasons, which are all the reasons, and there's a hundred more. But they rarely will give, very once in a while, they'll, they'll give the number one reason, and the number one reason why a woman will stay is because when she leaves, that's when she gets killed. Mm-hmm. It's not when she stays. She still will get battered and, you know, there will be abuse. But when you actually make that decision, that is the most dangerous time. And so we you know we never tell anyone to leave um, because ultimately they know um, the danger and the circumstances. We will help them plan when they're ready. But um, it's just really interesting. The other question always is, um, you know, why again? Why doesn't why doesn't she leave? And when they and I, you know, get the opportunity to tell them, well, because that's when she gets killed. I've had two of my clients killed in my career, mm-hmm. both in Domestic Violence Awareness Month in October, five years exactly five years apart, and both these women did everything that people always say, why don't you leave? Why don't you get a restraining order? Why don't you call the police? Why don't you just, you know, why don't you, why don't you? It's never asked, why don't you stop? Why don't you ask, why doesn't he stop battering her? Why does she have to pick up her whole life and move her children, leave her friends, leave her home, um, go through all this? It's always like, why why doesn't she? Why doesn't she? Why doesn't she? No one says, why doesn't he take a look at why he is controlling, abusive, and battering? And that's where my, you know, that's, and when I put that back out there, there's, okay. It's a different perspective. Because early on, you know, I would always, you know, come up with, well, what, and then all of a sudden, you know, just realize, wait a minute. It's always, why doesn't she just pick up and just change her whole life? And, you know, if we have a stalker, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, there's so many, you know, reasons. But number one is, is that that's when they get killed. Mm. I feel like we need a few more hours, but we only have 15 minutes. Um, I have a lot more questions I would love to ask, but I'll turn to audience questions. You guys also have a lot of questions. Um, We don't have the names of who asked, but this one is asking, San Francisco Family Court is very biased against women and children. How do we change family court to listen? And if they don't listen, to give an avenue for women to be heard. Um, Related to this, I actually have a friend who was very um, mistreated in San Francisco Family Court because she had been a victim of domestic violence. And I'm sure you guys hear this often, where the fact that she had been a victim of domestic violence and that was on record was actually used against her in San Francisco Family Court to question her ability to be um, a parent and to be able to have her children. And I'm sure this is something you guys hear often. When it was my own friend, it was heartbreaking. Uh, So with this question, what can we do about that bias in San Francisco family court? (laughs) And how do we make sure women are really heard? Well, I, I, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but San Francisco family court isn't alone. Right. Right. So um, it, it is a significant challenge, uh, despite my best efforts and the efforts of many well-intentioned people who have been working on family court reform in California and elsewhere for, for decades. Uh, it is, I see family court as um, a place where so many social norms and stereotypes, biases around women really come into play. And I think it's um, we need to deal with the issue of the misogyny that contributes to credibility questions. Um, people have a very hard time believing the stories that women tell in family court um, for all sorts of reasons. I, you know, there's a tendency for people to, in family law, more so than many other areas of law, rely on their own families. Um, as a perspective, one of the very early cases I worked on was a female judge in a case in which grandparents wanted um, time with a child in a family court situation where the mother had been uh, sexually abused by her father and as a result was protecting her daughter from spending time with her father. 
And the judge said, I would love it if my dad would be more involved with my kid's life. So I'm going to give grandpa more access. Um, we, As a result of some, a Supreme Court decision, we have a bit of a different uh, legal framework which provides greater protection. But at that time, um, and that sentiment certainly was, uh, it, it remains permissible, sort of this sense of, well, it works for my family. And I think uh, you know, I've seen it in so many situations where perhaps somebody ha was a victim of violence themselves in their family, and as a result of pushing that away, sort of um, overcompensates to some extent and tries to uh, ignore violence and the seriousness of violence in that family. I see people who have very little experience with violence and just can't believe that this is the reality for people. So I, I'm a strong believer in um, making sure you have advocates representing women in these situations because of the credibility issue, acknowledging it, that it's not just enough to tell your story. I also believe strongly in increased um, training and education for judges around what's now being talked about as virtuous listening. There's some really good research and um, interesting article uh, in the last year that came out about this idea that we need to do virtuous listening, being really open uh, and improve our listening skills in family court so we can understand, for example, why in the public health context, if a woman comes in to the hospital and as a result of a traumatic brain injury says, I can't remember this part of my story, or I'm confused, or my story is not linear, um, in the public health context, that makes the notion that she might have been um, strangled, an attempted strangulation, um, more credible. But in the family court context, saying, I don't remember, I'm confused, my story isn't linear, makes her less credible. So we need to rethink how we hear stories, how we understand mm -hmm. them, I think, which we can do through training and education, and then make some better decisions about who gets to be a judge. I think uh, that would also help, whether it's through elections or appointments. Um, I think having credentials that include an understanding of intimate partner violence family violence and child abuse, I think that's critical. And then holding our judicial officers and our courts accountable, court watch, being in the mm -hmm. courtroom. So many of these cases happen in open court, completely public, but with no attorneys. 80% 80, 80 plus uh, of the folks in family court are self-represented. Um, so we won't have attorneys. We may not have a court reporter or a record. Um, we may have a pro tem or temporary judge. Um, I don't think that's really what we meant when we talked about courts. So I would like to see much more accountability around our, our um, judicial institutions. Mm. And can I jump in on that? Because um, absolutely, 100%, it's about partnerships with the courts, it's about education, uh, Family Violence Council. We partner very closely with the court system um, to make systemic change. Um, and I would say it's not just about the courts. It's also about the bar. Mm. It's about our law enforcement on our um, district attorney and our public defender. Like, we all have a role to play in changing this. And fundamentally, we as society, we are the jurors. And we as society have to think about changing the social norms. Mm -hmm. Because the courts are reflective of our social norms. Mm -hmm. And we have hyper-masculinity -masculin and hyper-femininity um, sort of causing these norms to... Um, perpetuate and allow violence. San Francisco has the lowest number of children of any major city in our country. Um, we, uh, we have more dogs in our community than we do children. I think it's dogs and cats. Guilty. Guilty. Um, and children. And so what then you end up doing is um, creating fewer open spaces for families creating fewer open spaces for parks, creating less focus on education, creating less focus on family, putting more family and family violence into the shadows, into privacy, as opposed to bringing it out. So absolutely, we 100% agree that this is something that we have an opportunity to educate our court system and educate all the officials that engage in the court system. And we as an entire society and a community have a real responsibility to change the norms. And we have a real opportunity to think about violence in a totally different way. And that's the day that I'm very excited to look for. Yeah. Absolutely, Katie. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I just have to say, because if, if, just to, to piggyback on what you said about 
us changing the norms because I'm, a, I'm known as the question person. And so I'll just put questions out to all of you to really challenge your own thought process, your own beliefs on when you see, just for instance, if you see a woman on the street um, that may be prostituting, what's the first thought? Is the thought that what happened to that woman that she's ended, she's on that corner? What trauma, right? Or do you just see, I won't use the language, but you, what do you see, right? Who, you know, when you ask yourself, what are your thoughts about domestic violence or victim blaming? What are your thoughts about, I mean, because when we talk about being in court, um, you know, family court, if you just take a moment and sit in those courtrooms, your, your heart will break on how the women DV survivors are treated. No difference than when you have a rape survivor on trial, right? What were you wearing? Why were you there? How many partners mm-hmm. have you had in the past? Were you drinking? Um, so, and why women don't come forward to get the support and what are your thoughts about that? So when you, so thank you for bringing that up because that's where, this is where it changes, right? Our voice, our advocacy, but also challenging our own beliefs about who's incarcerated, why they're incarcerated, about survivors, about victim blaming. Um, that's where that change is going to happen. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think this is so important. And I must say, as um, with Alliance for Girls, I really see that social norm grooming happens so early in terms of the discrediting of girls' voices, mm-hmm. in terms of silencing of girls' voices. And we've done now four reports on the lived experiences of girls in the Bay Area and this piece around not being heard not being credited um, when they come forward with an instance of a vi- violence that being really ignored or boys will be boys, right? That concept of boys will be boys. So that's just what's really happening. It's not abuse. Um, it, it happens so young. It's happening as young as eight-year-old girls. And uh, that's really an opportunity to go upstream and to look at how we change those social norms much earlier. Um, so I appreciate that piece. We have so little time. I'm wondering if we even have time for one more question or I should just do closing. Um, but I think this is an important question. So this one says, England and Australia have made it illegal for coercive control. When is the U.S. going to recognize emotional, financial, and physical abuse? So I think this question really speaks to We've come so far, but we have such a long way to go to understand domestic violence more holistically um, and connect the dots. So if maybe just one of you can speak to, the, to this question, that would be great. I'm waiting for the day. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we actually do have some good policy on this. We haven't gone quite as far um, as those two countries in recognizing that coercive control um, is actionable, but we do have some good policy that recognizes the role coercive control plays. In California, we have some good policy, so we have to make that real. We have to um, have advocates in place to do that. We have to hold our courts accountable. Um, I think that we have uh, some law that we could really elaborate upon, Um, And I think we have friendly enough folks in the legislature that there's an opportunity to continue to build on that policy. So uh, just more work to be done. Thank you. So I want to make sure we have time for a closing. Uh, I want to again thank Blue Shield Foundation of California for allowing this conversation to happen. It's been so helpful to hear all the different elements of what goes into really preventing domestic violence from a child to the ecosystem in which we live, whether guns are made available, and also really seeing the criminal justice system as a place of prevention, um, which is pretty revolutionary and exciting to hear how that's going. And and again, I appreciate your recognition of the complexity of that, um, but also the successes. So I guess the closing here would be if, if there's one thing you want the audience to take away, one resource, one action that the audience can take, to really support your work, to support this work? Um, What can you give the audience to take away today? And I appreciate all of you taking time for this important topic. Maybe we can, do you want to start with Delia? We keep starting on the sides. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, for me, I mean, I mean, I know I said a lot, and I know there's a lot of challenges, um, but I also want folks to know that although I have had people in my life 
commit horrific crimes, even regardless of the information. I also have had some amazing men come out of our programs who were, you know, knuckleheads in our groups who are my coworkers today. Some of them have been my coworkers for 17, 18 years also. So both are true. And I think what I want people to take away is that there is hope and people do change. And, um, you know, and it's not me, it's not my job to judge who's going to change or not. It's just my job to give opportunity to change. Katie, do you want to? I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to write it down so I can get that. I, I would say that um, there are, we all really have a role to play in ending violence in our community, ending violence in our homes. And I, I will uh, uh, list a couple, but if you're in need, if you're in need of help, um, let me give you our phone support line, um, and we can connect you with other phone support lines that are specifically focused for domestic violence. Um, we have our support line. It's called um, the Talk Line, and our phone number is 415-441-KIDS. That's 415 441 Five four three seven, and again, we'll refer you out to the appropriate um, network who can really support you. And if you see folks on the streets that are struggling, help them, because we all really have a role to play. And if you want to make change, talk to the legislature, reach out to your elected officials, and think about and partner with them on ways that we can help end family violence. So that's that's my message that we really it's not individualized issues it's really a community issue and there's community solutions. Mm. And I would just add that making connections between all the various types of violence um is critically important. So when we're talking about community violence uh, when we're talking about firearms violence when we're talking about suicide prevention uh we need to be thinking about how all of that fits with intimate partner violence, with family violence. Uh, I think we're taking a harder look at suicide um, in the context of domestic violence and how often that may be the result of abuse, harassment, um, and threats, uh, and whether or not it's actually suicide in many instances. So I just feel as though the more we can all learn about the different ways that violence is perpetrated and experienced, mm. make those connections, and we can do a better job working on violence prevention and intervention mm. um, across the board. Thank you. This has been truly an amazing panel. Uh, each of you brings so much experience and expertise around what it will really take to move upstream, to prevent violence more holistically to understand its intersection with some of the key issues facing our communities. So I really appreciated each of your personal stories, your anecdotes of what it looks like on the ground, and most importantly, what we can do and what success can be. So thank you so much for participating. Um, And one last resource I would throw out again uh, is really each of these topics is addressed in the life course framework um, from Blue Shield Foundation of California. I read it and it really helped to understand how this all connects under this umbrella of domestic violence, which again affects one out of two um, of each of us in some way. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you you very much. Thank you all. Thank you.